Hey, skimmers, before we get into the show, have you listened to Revisionist History from Pushkin? Revisionist History is a podcast that re-examines something from the past and asks whether we got it right the first time. On the new season, Malcolm Gladwell takes on Disney's classic fairy tale, The Little Mermaid. On the surface, it's a kid-friendly story about a woman who falls in love and finds her voice. But lurking underneath is a much darker message. Malcolm dives deep and de-Disneyfies a Disney classic. He enlists a team of experts to write a new script and a star-studded cast to act it out, including Glenn Close, Jodie Foster, and Dak Shepard. Listen to Revisionist History wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's get into the show. Welcome to Skim This. I'm Bridget Armstrong. And I'm Luke Vargas. We're subbing in for Alex Carr this week, and we've got a lot to get to, including the new report accusing New York Governor Andrew Cuomo of multiple instances of sexual harassment. We'll also check in on what's up with evictions and look to Wall Street to learn just how profitable it is to be making vaccines right now. Then we chatted with the U.S. Surgeon General to learn what exactly we should call this big spike in COVID infections and just how bad things are going to get before they get better. Later, we'll skim what is and what isn't a HIPAA violation and ask a legal expert about the rules around vaccine mandates. And finally, happy birthday, MTV. You just turned 40, and my, how you've aged. We'll wrap up the show by looking back at the network's music and reality TV legacy. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. Let's skim this. All right, let's get to a few headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up, the independent investigation has concluded that Governor Andrew Cuomo sexually harassed multiple women. Here's the context. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo's been under fire since December when he was accused by a former staffer of non-consensual touching and making suggestive comments. Shortly after, New York Attorney General Letitia James started investigating Cuomo's actions. Lawyers interviewed 179 people, including accusers, admin employees, and even Cuomo himself. And after months of digging, James's office released the report this week. The results were damning. The report concluded that the governor sexually harassed at least 11 current and former state employees, violating state and federal laws in the process. Investigators found that Cuomo and his team created a toxic and hostile workplace that, quote, allowed the sexual harassment to occur and persist. Cuomo was pushing back. In a video address, he ignored many of the allegations against him and instead blamed generational and cultural differences for people perceiving that his actions were inappropriate. And in a truly surreal moment, he shared a slideshow of pictures showing him kissing and hugging all sorts of people. I do it with everyone, black and white, young and old, straight and LGBTQ. Cuomo's defense is going down like a lead balloon. He's now facing calls to resign from fellow governors and Democratic leaders like Nancy Pelosi and even his one-time ally, President Biden. For now, he says he's staying put, but his clock appears to be ticking. A majority of New York state lawmakers say if Cuomo doesn't resign, they're ready to pursue impeachment, a process that could be swift. Cuomo is a politician who many thought could be the next president, 
Last year, he even published a book about his pandemic leadership called American Crisis. And now that title could have a whole new meaning. Okay, next headline. We also want to turn now to some breaking news from the Biden administration, which is announcing a new limited ban on evictions. If you're wondering if you somehow woke up in the wrong week, don't worry. On last week's show, we did mention that a nationwide ban on evictions during the pandemic was about to expire. And for a few days, it actually did. Until President Biden came under pressure from Democratic lawmakers who said, hey, there are still 11 million Americans behind on rent. So on Wednesday, Biden's CDC introduced a new federal eviction moratorium that will last until October 3rd. Now eviction protections are back in place, although they could face legal challenges. Back in June, the Supreme Court said Biden couldn't renew the old evictions ban and that any new one would have to come from legislation rather than executive order. Landlords are already suing the federal government over this new ban namely the Alabama and Georgia chapters of the National Association of Realtors. They say homeowners have lost billions of dollars in rental income over the last year, that the federal government doesn't have the authority to stop evictions. So this new lifeline for struggling renters could be short-lived. Our final headline this week comes from Wall Street. Johnson & Johnson are trading higher in pre-market trading after the company came out with numbers. We've got Pfizer earnings in. It's a race for 2021, driven much in part by its COVID-19 vaccine. Here's the context. We kind of suspected this was going to happen. Sales of COVID vaccines are making drug companies really rich. This morning, Moderna announced that it sold more than $4 billion worth of its COVID shots and has $20 billion of orders lined up through 2023. Last week, Pfizer announced it sold almost $8 billion worth of COVID shots between just April and July and expects total sales to top $33 billion by the end of the year. And Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca also crushed it, even though AstraZeneca's shot isn't approved in the U.S., whether this COVID vaccine heyday is going to continue is TBD. On one hand, COVID is far from over, and most countries still need millions and millions of shots. With demand still exceeding supply, prices could stay high. And that's on top of companies like Pfizer and Moderna raising prices all on their own. On the other hand, many of the countries that still need vaccines are poorer than the ones that already have huge stockpiles. With pockets that aren't quite as deep, these countries might not be able to pay top dollar, meaning the profits some pharma companies were celebrating this week could eventually slip. All right, this next segment doesn't need much of an introduction. We've got COVID questions and we need answers. So we called up President Biden's top doc to help break things down. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, welcome to Skim This. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, thanks for having me. Okay, right now, COVID cases are rising around the country. Um, we don't really know how high they'll go. I know you've said that's going to be determined by how we respond. But we have seen when there is high levels of community transmission in the past that that leads to weeks or months until you see peak cases, peak hospitalizations, and peak deaths. I'm curious what our audience should be bracing for. Is some of the next few weeks and months kind of baked in already because of community spread? Well, it's a really good question. And I will say one of the hardest things to do 
during this pandemic has been to make predictions. There's a long, long list of people who have been proven wrong many times in their attempts to model this virus. But I think one thing we can relatively safely say is that we are still on the upward portion of the trajectory of this latest surge. We will likely see cases continue to go up for days more and likely for several weeks more. When it will peak and at what level it will peak, we're not sure. But we've consistently seen that there is a lag between cases, hospitalizations, and deaths. And usually around, once you see cases go up, and a few weeks later, you see hospitalizations go up. A couple of weeks after that, you see deaths go up. I think we have to recognize that we will likely hear numbers that will be really concerning over the next few weeks. But here's one thing I think that's reassuring about what we may hear, is that as much as we're worried the numbers will continue to go up, uh, and you know, we, what we should be good and feel better about is that the hospitalizations and deaths will likely not surge to the same degree that what we saw in January of this year. The reason is because we've got so many people fully vaccinated, 165 million people in this country. And we know now very clearly from the data that if you're fully vaccinated, your chances of dying from COVID or being hospitalized due to COVID are dramatically lowered. And even your chance of getting infected is low. If you do have a breakthrough infection, it will likely be mild or even asymptomatic. So all pointing to the fact that the vaccine continues to be our pathway out of this pandemic. Dr. Murthy, last year, we described the COVID outbreak in different phases. So, for example, when we were coming down from like the initial peak, we you know, were warned to be really careful because we're going to see a second wave. And now it feels like we're in this place where we're seeing this rising cases, but we don't really have a name to describe what's going on. Is there like a name for this phase of the outbreak in the U.S.? Well, Bridget, that's a great question. We think of this as the Delta wave because it's the wave that's being driven by Delta. But I'll tell you two things. One is I recognize just how exhausting this is. We hoped there would be just one wave and then there was another wave and then there was another wave in January. And now we're dealing with the Delta wave. And look for all of those out there, especially like parents like me and others who may be listening who are thinking, gosh, what am I supposed to do with my kids? How am I supposed to manage work? What's going to happen with going back to work? Are we going to be working from home again? These are the questions a lot of people are asking, and I I understand how exhausting it is. But the second thing I want to say, though, is that we are actually at a very different place now than we were last year when we were dealing with the waves. And the critical difference is that we have the vaccine now, which we didn't have last year. And so if you are fully vaccinated, you have more confidence that your health is protected. And you also have greater confidence that your family members who are vaccinated are protected as well. You know, that's the reason I got my mom and dad vaccinated, make sure my grandmother was vaccinated, make sure that my wife got vaccinated. And as soon as a vaccine is available for my two little kids who are three and four, we will get them vaccinated too. So I know this is tough. I know we're being asked to hold on a bit longer, but we are actually able to do more in our lives because we are fully vaccinated than we were last year. And that represents a big step forward uh, that I, I don't want us to lose sight of because we have made a lot of progress. I think another side of that frustration that we're seeing from people are are the folks who felt like they've done everything right. Like they were the people who were wearing their masks. They're the folks who've gotten vaccinated. Um, And now they feel like a lot of the rules and the guidance we're hearing is really built around people who, frankly, broke the rules. So I'm wondering how you tackle the challenge of like developing guidance and rules when it's people breaking the rules who are actually driving this part of the pandemic outbreak. Well, Bridget, gosh, I got to tell you, I've heard this from so many people in the last few days who have said, hey, I'm doing everything I'm supposed to. Why do I have to pay the price 
in terms of these restrictions, you know, when other folks aren't getting vaccinated. And look, I get that because the truth is, if we had more people in our country vaccinated, we may not be seeing the kind of surge we're seeing right now. We may not have to necessarily uh, put masks back on in public indoor spaces. We may feel even better, you know, about our kids going to school in the fall. So yeah, I completely get that. And that's why with pandemic responses, what you realize really quickly is this is more than about individual responsibility. This is about collective responsibility. It's about recognizing the decisions we make don't just affect us. They affect other people too. And that's one of the reasons why it's so important when we talk to people that we couch it in those terms that you're getting vaccinated, not just for yourself. You're doing it so that other kids who are too young to get vaccinated are shielded from the virus. You're doing it so that kids can not only go back to school, but can stay in school. You're doing it so healthcare workers who are just utterly exhausted and burned out after a year and a half of this pandemic have some semblance of relief because more people are protected and caseloads are going to come down. Those are all the reasons why it's so important for us to get vaccinated. And this is a real moment, Bridget, I think, for our country where we have to make a decision. You know, are we 300 million plus individuals who are looking out for ourselves, or are we one nation that recognizes that our health and our future is interdependent and the decisions we make affect other people? I hope it's the latter, because that is what's going to get us through this pandemic. Dr. Murthy, in the last week, we've seen a lot of employers, including governments, mandating that employees be vaccinated. Now we're hearing New York City going to require proof of vaccination to go to restaurants, to work out in gyms. Are you glad to see this shift in policy? Is this something you've been maybe cheerleading quietly uh, on the sidelines for a little while now? Well, I certainly think it's very reasonable for organizations to move toward these kind of vaccine requirements. And for one simple reason, that if you're a school or you're a hospital or your workplace. You want to have a safe place for people to come and work and learn. And many institutions are recognizing that the best way to make sure that the workplace is safe and that schools are safe is to make sure that people are vaccinated. And that's why I think you're seeing this larger movement. So I think it's very reasonable. I think especially in the healthcare setting, you know, we have a history in healthcare settings of mandating and requiring vaccinations because we are doing that to protect our patients. You know, as a doctor, when I go to the hospital, It's my job to take care of the people who are coming in asking for help. And if I'm going to expose them inadvertently to COVID or to the flu or something else, that's inconsistent with that mission, that obligation I have to protect my patients. So I think this is a move in the right direction. I think it's going to help improve our vaccination rates. I think that ultimately you're going to see more organizations putting these kind of requirements in place because we all want to bring this pandemic to an end and getting the vaccination rate up is the best way to do that. Unlike other countries, the U.S. doesn't have a federal digital system to track who's vaccinated and who's not. We're hearing you might need one app to go to a restaurant in New York City, another up in Albany and upstate New York, another maybe in New Jersey. I mean, does it give you some unease that we are trying to do a vaccine mandate sort of system built on a pen and paper kind of system in the United States? And might that need to change? Well, it's an important question. And there has been, thankfully, a lot of evolution in recent months in the private sector to build solutions, uh, vaccine verification type systems. And I think we're going to see that accelerate significantly as more institutions move toward the vaccine requirement for their workplace or for their school. So I I do think that that's going to continue to get better and more reliable. But I do think, yes, that's taking a little time and there are going to be some pain points, you know, in that learning curve. But I think the the bottom line is that these requirements are ultimately going to be helpful. And I think they're going to help bump up our vaccination rates. And it's not just getting the vaccine rates up, but think about it. If you're somebody who's coming back to the workplace, 
you know, I hear from people all the time who say, I want to know that the workplace is safe. I want to know if people are vaccinated. If they're not vaccinated, I want to know what precautions my workplace is taking to prevent me from being exposed or bringing infection home and inadvertently transmitting it to my young child who's not vaccinated. So these are the kind of reasonable questions I think folks are going to ask. And that's why I think we're just going to see more and more of these requirements. And I think they're very reasonable. All right, Dr. Murthy, in our final few seconds, we want to do our skim lightning round. So I'm going to ask you some questions. Just limit them to really short answers. All right. Have you lost or almost misplaced your vaccination card? I almost misplaced it twice. And thankfully, my family helped me find it. So I'm in a good place now, but it was close. (laughs) What's the thing you want to do the most when the pandemic is over? I want to go visit my family and friends across the country and in India. And what are the odds that a vaccine for kids under 12 will be approved during the next school year? I think the odds are high. Oh, is hand sanitizer always going to smell like funky old tequila? Or are we going to go back to it smelling nice again? <laughs> well, I think there, there's a real business opportunity there for any entrepreneurs who are listening who are looking for a market opportunity. Uh, pleasant smelling hand sanitizer. Finally, August, peak of summer. Are you going to outdoor dine or indoor dine with your family this month? I'm probably going to do some outdoor dining. You know, I've got two small kids at home who are not vaccinated. So I tend to be cautious about indoor settings. I wear masks when I'm in indoor settings. And, you know, if I've got to take my mask off a lot, then I try to avoid settings like that. So I'll probably do some outdoor dining. Yeah. Surgeon General Murthy, thank you so much for joining us on The Skim. No problem. Thank you so much. All right, we talked a little about vaccine mandates with the Surgeon General there, but there's been so much news about them lately that it's hard to keep up. It's funny, because earlier this year, it seemed like vaccine mandates just weren't on the table. This is America, after all. Nobody tells us what to do. Or it looked like vaccine mandates wouldn't be necessary. Remember everyone frantically checking to see if we were in vaccine group 1B or 1C? But now, with cases rising and vaccination rates basically stagnating, mandates are back on everywhere from big cities. Tonight, New York City becomes the first in the nation to require proof of vaccine to eat, work out, or enjoy the Big Apple indoors. To big public universities. Indiana University's COVID-19 vaccination mandate appears to be on firm legal footing. To employers ordering their staffs to get vaxxed. The Walt Disney Company. Google and Facebook. Walmart, Delta, and United Airlines. Even entire states like California, and as of last week, the entire federal government, have said if you get your paycheck from us, vaccines aren't optional. To make sense of all of this and understand what we might be able to expect going forward, we called up Diane Hoffman. I'm a professor of law, and I direct the law and healthcare program at the University of Maryland Carey School of Law. Before we talk about what businesses are doing or what states and cities are doing, let's start big picture, really big picture. Like, why can't the U.S. just order every American get vaccinated? After all, that's what Indonesia or even the landlocked nation of Turkmenistan has done. Hoffman says the Constitution wants to have a word. So under our federalism system, the federal government is limited under the 10th Amendment because the powers that are not enumerated to the federal government fall within the states. And so historically, the states have had the authority to govern and regulate public health and just health care in general, mostly. 
Hoffman adds that while the federal government lacks the power to outright mandate vaccines, it does have two tools that also happen to come from the Constitution that it can use to increase vaccinations, the spending clause and the commerce clause. Under the spending clause, they could give grants to states and condition those grants on the states having mandatory vaccines. So maybe they'd be giving grants for subsidizing people who can't afford vaccines or vaccine education programs by the states. And they say, all right, well, we'll only give you these funds if you have a vaccine mandate. The spending clause hasn't been used to push vaccines just yet, but it's not out of the question, and neither is using the Commerce Clause. The federal government has the authority to regulate interstate commerce. So if they had a rationale that we need vaccine mandates to prevent the transmission of the virus from state to state, and you could see that that could be a a reasonable argument, then they could conceivably implement a vaccine mandate. So far, the Commerce Clause has played a role in Team Biden's mask mandate, the one that applies to transit hubs, public transit like buses, and even commercial air travel. But it's still TBD if it will play a role in the vaccine push. So that's what the federal government can do. But as Hoffman made clear, it's really state and local governments that hold the cards here. And to see why, it's time for a quick history lesson. The case that's commonly cited with respect to state mandating vaccines is Jacobson versus Commonwealth of Massachusetts, a 1905 case involving an immigrant from Sweden who refused a vaccine for smallpox that was mandated by Cambridge. And that went to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said that the state given the public health risk, had the authority to require individuals to get a vaccine. So far, no state has tested its powers to mandate that everyone get a COVID shot. And while it's possible the Supreme Court could overrule its precedent going back to 1905, if vaccine mandates become a thing in the U.S., it's likely they will start at the state or local level. Though Hoffman says it's important to remember one thing. The government can't hold someone down and vaccinate them. They can fine them, they can quarantine them if they don't comply. So we do this now for, say you have someone who has transmissible TB and they are refusing to quarantine, then the state can actually quarantine them, require that they be isolated. Other punishments for not getting vaxxed are meant to make life more inconvenient, even if you're technically still allowed out of the house. That's what Indiana University's going for when it basically said, yeah, feel free to skip the vaccine, just don't bother showing up to class, unless you have a medical or religious exemption and hang on to your mask. Otherwise, there are plenty of other universities out there for you. And it's also New York City's approach when it says you can still eat a good meal in Manhattan tonight. But if you're not vaxxed, you better enjoy steak frites from a takeout container. And that brings us to the final type of vaccine mandates we've been seeing lately. Ones 
coming from private businesses. This week, a shift in business perspective on vaccine requirements. Just like businesses can tell customers, no shirt, no shoes, no service, they can also tell customers, no vax, no service, or no vax, no job. But this, too, comes with a catch. Because whether it's for customers or for employees, businesses can't discriminate against people who are members of a protected class. That includes people with disabilities or members of a certain gender, race, or age group. Complying with that will require businesses, governments, and vaccine passport systems to make it possible to claim a disability or a medical exemption, or in other cases, a religious exemption from being vaccinated. And businesses, too, will have to honor those exemptions. For customers, that might mean making an exception if you mask up. But when employees of a business have those exemptions, businesses may need to make some alternate arrangements. Employers are subject to the Americans with Disabilities Act, and that requires that there be some exceptions for medical reasons or disability. If you're immunocompromised and you can't take a vaccine for that reason, you may have an adverse reaction, then they must consider giving you a reasonable accommodation. That could be working from home, wearing masks, social distancing, having to do different tasks where they're not interacting with other employees or customers. And yet, reasonable accommodations aren't always an option, especially at jobs where people need to interact face-to-face or serve customers or treat the sick or the elderly. And in those cases, Hoffman says opting out of a vaccine mandate could cost you your job. Employers, for the most part, do have the ability to terminate employees. I mean, a lot of employees work at will. If you're an employer weighing mask mandates for your staff or for your customers, or if your job, your school or your town is mandating you get the shot, we'd love to hear from you. Send us a note to audio at theskim.com or if voicemail is more of your thing, Leave us one at 646-461-6370. And don't be surprised if we call you back. There's this thing I keep seeing. Maybe you have too. A press conference is going well. Then all of a sudden, a reporter will ask a famous person, like a politician or an athlete, about their vaccination status. Luke, have you seen this? Oh, yeah. They're like, hey, I can't tell you that. And it's like, wait. Why not? Hey, ever heard of HIPAA, Bridget? That's my medical info. Your question was illegal. Invoking HIPAA to get out of vaccine questions is becoming pretty popular. Have you yourself gotten vaccinated and do you disagree? Your first question is a violation of my HIPAA rights. I don't necessarily uh, think that's exactly important, so I think that's HIPAA. North Carolina's lieutenant governor says showing up at people's doors and requesting medical information violates HIPAA laws. The thing is... They're all kind of using it wrong. Here's what HIPAA's actually about in 60 seconds. HIPAA is short for the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. It's a law from 1996 that limits the info your health insurance company or medical professionals can provide about you without your consent. So your doctor can share info about a diagnosis with your insurer so your treatments are covered. But that's about it. 
because HIPAA literally only applies to medical entities and associated businesses, which means it's totally legal for random people to ask you about your medical details or vaccine status, whether it's the host at a restaurant, reporters at a press conference, or your employer trying to figure out who's vaxxed. It's your information, and it's up to you to consent or not consent to sharing it. HIPAA only says your insurance company or doctor can't tell your employer or the restaurant you want to visit about your vaccine status without your consent. And if you don't want to take my word for it, I asked the Surgeon General. Okay, is me asking you or anyone else if they're vaccinated a violation of our HIPAA rights? No. Got something you want us to skim in 60 seconds? Send your idea to audio at theskim.com. Before we go today, it's time to wish MTV a happy birthday. The network that was once synonymous with youth has finally reached middle age. When MTV premiered 40 years ago, it was unlike anything else on television. Ladies and gentlemen, rock and roll. I heard you on the wireless back in 52, lying awake intently tuning in on you. In 1981, MTV launched as a platform to showcase a new and exciting way of promoting music, the music video. It was the early days of cable television and music videos were free programming. That's where MTV saw an opportunity to position itself as the purveyor of cool for suburban white teenagers. And the early days of MTV were decidedly white. Really famously, Michael Jackson's videos were not playing on MTV. Amanda Klein is the author of Millennials Killed the Video Star, MTV's transition to reality programming. At the time, he was the biggest pop star. And the fact that MTV wasn't playing their videos, it just, it got really hard to ignore. MTV eventually started featuring videos by Black artists and expanded its programming by launching shows like Yo! MTV Raps in the late 80s. But as the network got older, they shifted away from music videos. This is the true story. True story. Seven strangers (laughs) picked to live in a loft. When the real world comes out, there is reality television, but it's very different from the real world. They had wanted to do a show that would kind of capitalize on the success of Beverly Hills 90210, which was doing really, really well with youth audiences. But the problem was it was really expensive. It's expensive to hire writers and stars and wardrobe. And so basically, They came up with a different idea, which was to still have the drama, but instead it's just real people. How was it received? Was the show successful at first? It was not. No, I was super excited and I watched it and all my friends watched it. But critically, the reviews were not very good. They were like, boy, this is really boring. And, you know, these kids are so self-centered. The ratings were pretty just average, nothing spectacular. But that does change in 94 when they go to San Francisco and they have Pedro Zamora cast in that season. Hi, my name is uh, Peter Zamora. Um, I'm 21 years old. I am uh, Cuban. I'm an uh, HIV AIDS uh, educator. It's kind of got international recognition because of this cast member who is an advocate and an activist for HIV education. 
The Real World was MTV's first reality TV success, but by the time the 2000s rolled around, you were way more likely to see a show about a musician's life than their actual music video on MTV. There were a lot kind of in between The Real World and then where they really get into their iconic shows like The Hills and Jersey Shore. Like there's a period of time where MTV is kind of experimenting with different shows. The celeb reality shows were really big. The Osbournes was on MTV. Someone has been in my room and taken my beers away from my room. I don't think so, darling. Uh... Who would do that? Really important to the history of reality television in that we have this incredibly famous person with this very defined persona, and then he is basically put into a sitcom. Now it seems very banal, but it was really just unbelievable to see when it came out. So there were shows like that, the Jessica Simpson show, Newlyweds. Hey, Buffalo. They also did shows like True Life and Made. Made was one where people kind of have a dream and then MTV helps you become that thing. Meet Rachel. <laughs> A quirky, outgoing sophomore with a big problem. They just terrorized me so much. Now she wants to get even by getting hot. And the other thing that was happening was TRL launches in 1998. Um, I think it's been almost a month now. We've been limp biscuitless on TRL since we retired. Roland, all of that uh, might possibly end after today on the phone. Our buddy Fred. What's up, Fred? What's up, Big Daddy? And that's really important because it's sort of MTV's last attempt to really show music videos. How do we understand MTV's legacy today? It's like they've been so many things. And even right now, as we try to define what they are today, we're like, ah, they kind of show reruns of stuff. What what do you think MTV's biggest legacy or biggest impact on culture is as we think about it 40 years later? Even though most of the viewers today won't see a music video playing, I do think the music video, the launch of that as kind of a popular art form really can't be overstated, both in terms of just the idea that everybody would have to make a music video to promote their music, but also the idea that some performers kind of thrive or do their best when they are given this visual platform to complement their performance. I think the idea of an entire channel devoted to youth programming, it's one of the first of the big cable channels, you know, which are all iconic in their own way. I think the real world and kind of its contribution and all of MTV's reality programming, the the contribution to the overall history of the genre is very important. Good to know that icons like Snooki and groundbreaking shows like Pimp My Ride will forever be remembered in the pantheon of early 2000s history. And we have MTV to thank for that. Thanks for listening to Skim This. Today's episode was skimmed by me, Bridget Armstrong. And me, Luke Vargas, along with our associate producer, Kira Long. We had additional help this week from Sujin Coriolis. The Skim's senior audio engineer is Andrew Calloway, and Graylin Brashear is our head of audio. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, check out our other podcast, 9 to 5-ish, where we talk all things career. 
Follow it wherever you listen to your podcast.